Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com. Enjoy. All right, the tallest actor ever to win an Oscar. There you go. It's pretty good, right? Are you worried somebody's going to break your record? Kevin Garnett's in Uncut Gems. You might take it. Mm, Or Shaq playing Hamlet. (laughs) That could happen. (laughs) If KG gets nominated for Uncut Gems, you might be in trouble. You think so? Six foot five. Like, who are the the five tallest actors? You and Clint Eastwood. Who are the other three? Uh, Well, um, Jimmy Stewart was pretty tall. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's not a lot of tall actors. Costner's of... like a solid 6'1". Six 6'1", one. Six one, yeah. Um, James Cromwell, he's 6'7". James... He's, he's taller than me. He's 6'7"? If, he if he wins an Oscar, he, he will he will take the, the throne away from me. Do you think, because a lot of actors are short, do you think that's an issue sometimes with movies where they're like, he's just too, Tim's just too taller than this other guy we were thinking? Could be. Could be. It or depends they have to on, just shoot it. Depends on the security or or lack thereof of the lead actor, you know. <laughs> but for example, Tom Cruise didn't have a problem with it, you know. No. When I was doing uh, uh, War of the Worlds with him, and we even had to get into a death match together, and you know, well, he had to win, but right, he had to win that one. But no, there's certain people just don't have that insecurity. One of my best friends is uh, not particularly tall and never comes up. Any hoops for you ever or no? I, you know, around hoop season, I was always playing hockey. Um, oh, yeah, you're a hockey guy. Yeah, so growing up in New York City, I, w- I played a lot of roller hockey. Um, wow. And uh, and a little bit of ice hockey. The, the ice time was really hard to come by. You know, you'd have to get up at 4 in the morning, Yeah, play at 6 That's in the That's still the case, by the way, in yeah, all areas of uh, the United States. Somehow. And then there's the like the midnight leagues, you know, right. where you're playing, a, <laughs> you're playing a game at 1 in the morning and getting home. Three, four, and you're still hyped up from the game, and it's just not healthy. Uh, <laughs> my my son was got into hockey like probably like right as he turned six, and there's no hockey out here. There's two rinks. I know. And neither of them were anywhere near our house, and I know. he hit a point where it's like, all right, is he going to start doing this? And when you start looking at it, it's like, well, that's an hour that way. That's 45 minutes that way. It's five in the morning. It's six in the morning. It's like, yeah. that's not fun. Can you not do this? It's a big commitment. You know, it's that, you know, the parents across America that are doing it, you know, they know all those road trips too. It's, mm. it's tough. You got to get up super early and also just deal with the whole nature of it as well. The culture of it. It's, it's pretty interesting. It can be good. It can be bad. You know, I always found, you know, that, it was important that, to let the kids play and not to do too many drills. We we have uh, we had a place. Uh, we still do have a place in the country outside of New York. We built a little oversized tennis court with yeah. and, and kind of put a curb around it so we could flood it in the winters and had shinny games there for you know twenty thirty kids from the neighborhood play all day long. Get a fire going, hot chocolate. Nothing better, nothing better in the world, especially when you're like the next, like if it's a Friday and you're, you're, you're doing your sheet of ice, you kind of handheld Zamboni that I had. Yeah. There's there's basically a hose (laughs) running into a T with it. And at the bottom of the T is a bunch of holes that lets out a little bit of water. Right. And it's being down there at midnight after having shoveled it and you got a little scotch uh, fire going, yeah, and you're doing your slow move Zamboni, so that in the morning you have this black ice. It's just the best. The so best. it was a homemade Zamboni, or like you got this? No, edge? it's actually you can order them, and uh, I found it in a catalog. It's mini Zamboni, mini Zamboni. It's interesting. Like, imagine a tea. Yeah, uh, the tea is the bottom, and there's a whole bunch of holes in the bottom, and then the hose goes into the top. So it's it's like a very primitive Zamboni. But it works. Wow. It creates this incredible black eyes. Um, why don't uh why don't you get credit for the climactic scene of Top Gun more often? <laughs> you you we just did a rewatchables about it uh a few months ago. And you're right there. You're the first guy high fives, you take over for goose, nothing. Yeah. It's been lost in the Tim Robbins history. That's all right. Merlin? How mind. many lines did you have? 
eight, but it was the best job because here, check this out. I worked down in San Diego for maybe a week to yeah. start in, somewhere in June or something like that. And I got paid for the entire summer. Every week I wasn't there. I got paid. So I went back to LA, produced a play, acted in it. By the time they had finished down in San Diego, they were doing starting to do the air sequences in full in these like you know machines. Uh, I don't yeah. know what they're called. And um, I worked for a week there, and basically got paid for. This was early in my career. Got paid for like eighteen weeks. Wow, for nothing, for doing nothing. I said, "Wow, this is that's a that's a good way to make a living." Did you audition? <laughs> you were like available for any part, or did you were you going for another part and didn't get it, or what happened? I have no idea. It was just you're just book. in. Yeah, I was just in. How did Bull Durham happen? Well, it, that was, I think Bull Durham was after that. Yeah, it was yeah. two years after. Bull Durham happened, uh, I was auditioning at the time. I auditioned for that part. I did well, and then I had to go prove myself with Ron Shelton. I had to go throw the ball. Kevin Costner was there, and I had to pitch to him uh, because he didn't want to have people that didn't know how to play baseball. Yeah. And uh, I was also offered Eight Men Out. Remember that movie? Yeah. That was a good, both John of those Sales, movies. Yeah. Well, you made the right choice. I, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Who would you have been in Eight Men Out? Like one of the, I forget. One of the white socks? I forget. Yeah, one of the, yeah. One of the black socks. A black socks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was a great uh, movie and a great script and had a couple friends that were going to do it. And it was John Sales, just on Matawan, which I loved. And But that this, this was something about this script about that Ron Sheldon had written. And then meeting him and then uh, playing a little ball with Kevin and then meeting Susan and, yeah. I, I think I did make the right decision. What Changed happened, my life. What happened with your arm during that during that filming thing? Because you're throwing a lot of pictures. My arm was fine. I, I, yeah. I have pictures of me icing it. Uh, they, they, you know, they had a trainer, and every time you finished, you, they iced it and did all the th therapy things they do. You know, I, I, I didn't realize I, I played third base, so yeah. that was the extent of my arm. But you have to have a pretty good arm. Um, so I didn't know the mechanics. I had to learn the mechanics and you know, how to push off and how the how power pitching comes from the legs and all that stuff. Um, and uh, it, it, but it, it was a dream come true. Imagine, you know, you're a kid that always wanted to be a baseball player, and now you're an adult. Uh, you're given a uniform, and they right. tell you to go out on the field and have fun. You know, it's like that's pretty cool. Because I used to act out. Uh, games, you know, right. my, we didn't have a television, so I'd listen to New York Mets, Mets games on on the radio, and I'd put on my you know uniform that I'd gotten for Christmas, and I pretend to be the pitcher, and I you know act out the entire game, and, and you know, so I, uh, it was you know one of those dreams come true. Costner was here a couple months ago. We were talking about that movie, and he was saying like one of the things he remembered is just like all of a sudden you and Susan Sarandon are falling in love as you're filming the movie and you just like the intensity and just everything about it. Everybody knew they were making a good movie. Your life's changing, her life's changing and just everything. He said it was like really a memorable experience. It was, it was a beautiful time. It was a beautiful time. And I, I can still smell that air, the, the tobacco in the air. Were you Durham, filming that? Like North Carolina? Durham, Durham North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Did you know that it had a chance to go down as like, kind of the baseball movie because some people think there's like some people in the natural camp there's there's people in the bull durham camp there's people in the major league camp but bull durham i think is the consensus probably has the most votes for I, best baseball uh, movie. I i really enjoy hearing that and i yeah. I, I i believe i believe uh, so too yeah look, come on the writing of that film is so amazing you know when i first read that script you know the church of baseball you know all the all annie's rants about you know walt whitman and the connection between what it is to be free and baseball, all these great metaphorical things that only a baseball player and a person that's interested in writing would, would, would conceive. Ron Shelton, you know, was a minor league player. Right. So he really knew the world and loved the world, you know, with respect for the world. And so uh, we knew we were in good hands for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the insight he had in the script uh, no one knew who, whether he could direct or not. This is his first directing gig. But I was sold the second day of dailies. Uh, we're watching actual dailies in a hotel, which is what they used to do. And I hear this commotion behind me, and I see Ron Shelton holding one of the producers up 
by his lapels up up on a wall off the off the off the floor saying if you ever talk to my actor again i will fucking kill you oh my god yeah. <laughs> i was like kevin looks at me and he goes cujo <laughs> <laughs> that became our nickname for ron oh uh, wow he basically was saying in this in his second day of work as a professional director i'm gonna make my movie or you're gonna fire me which i i still remember as you know that's gutsy yeah it's uh it's the work of someone that is not going to be messed around with and he's setting down the ground rules right from the start something i i learned from ron that you know you have to if you're going to be the leader of something you 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 gotta let them let you drive uh it doesn't help to have uh eight drivers in a car it just doesn't also three really richly drawn out characters that I wonder now we're 31 years later, I think, 30 years, 31, if that's just like a Netflix show now or like a seven-episode HBO show or if they even think that's a, that Bull Durham is a movie. Would they try oh, to Oh, we wouldn't it? be able to get Bull Durham yeah, done. Yeah, it would have to be a TV series, right? It probably wouldn't be. You know? the, like Apple TV would be like, hey, we're doing this minor league baseball show. Doubtful. And it just would be different. Doubtful they would even do it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. But that's the good news is we got it done. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> different era. <laughs> we all got paid. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm really happy. So proud to be part of that film. That was, you know, it's, this is the thing. Um, in the long run, what you want is something that can still be seen, right? Yeah. And Bull Durham can still be seen and appreciated. There's movies that fade away fast. And oftentimes those are the movies that are advertised a lot and uh, become these uh, hits while they're out, you know, make $100 million. But they just don't stand the test of time. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I'd much rather have Bull Durham's in there than, you know, something that was the, I don't know what beat the beat Bull Durham at the box office at the time, but I'm pretty sure it's not still around. Well, what's crazy is it, there's a timelessness to it. There's no cell phones, obviously. There's no internet. I'm not sure it matters. No. Because when you watch it, it's it's still, I don't feel like we're in 1988 necessarily, like some of the hairdos maybe, but for the most part, it's mostly a movie that could be made now. It would have all the same beats. Yeah. Minor yeah. League Baseball certainly hasn't changed. It's still in the same rinky-dink towns and weird parts of America, so that part's not any different. The whole concept of Crash Davis, like that still exists over and over again. There's a Crash Davis. You always read about the real life Crash Davis, all that stuff. And then, you know, what happens with Nuke with the meteoric rise and you know he's just kind of passing through town before he gets to the majors. It's yep. all themes that still exist. Right, before he blows his arm out. <laughs> right, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, when do you think he blew his arm out? I don't know, I'm thinking about four or five seasons in. Tommy John surgery, they convert him to a closer, doesn't really quite work. Doesn't work out. Yeah. Uh, he retires, he's at trade shows doing autographs and... <laughs> right. and and then uh, someone, uh, then he meets Jim Bouton. Right. And Jim Bouton teaches him how to throw a knuckleball, and he makes this great comeback. That was my idea for the sequel. <laughs> Would you have done a sequel? Hell yeah. I think I'm a little too old now, but uh, when I was 40 or 45, you I thought have, that would have been a good sequel. You had more than enough juice to do the sequel. Oh, sure. Yeah. But like washed, semi-washed up nuke making one last run at it. <laughs> 60 years old, <laughs> throwing the knuckleball. Um, no, you actually got to know Jim Bowden, uh, yeah. who passed recently. Um, what a lovely man. What a great, great, great guy. He, he showed me how to throw a knuckleball. For the audience, the young ones out there, Jim, Jim Bowden writes the first great baseball, like behind the scenes baseball book before. Incredible book. And nobody had ever kind of, peeked behind the curtain in a book like that. Right. He who played for a team. Completely de-romanticized the, the <laughs> whole idea of the glory of Mickey Mantle, for example. I haven't read that book in a while. I imagine it it reads super tame now. I imagine right? too. I don't know. I did read his recent book uh, that he wrote about this minor league. Uh, uh, oh, oh, you know, he started a league of... Uh, Baseball, a baseball league of like original baseball team, you know, the like yeah. using the original ball, the no gloves, uh, like oh, I like those like leagues. the baseball no the from no like eighteen nineties, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Uh, so yeah, and he wrote a book about uh, actually environmental 
pollution in 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 New England. Um, I I'm curious to to return to ball four. I it's uh, I remember reading as a teenager and just being just giddily in love with it. You know, I remember the same thing with the Bronx Zoo when Sparky Lyle wrote that one. And he had the Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson stories. And oh it was my like, God. oh my God, these guys didn't like each other. They yeah. just had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, they had to be separated in the clubhouse. Yeah. People sitting on birthday cakes and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good that you have that perspective that this ball, ball, ball four was the first. Yeah. Right? It was the one that was like, there's so many people got so offended by that book oh, when yeah. it came out. It was like how you like broke the veil of, of the silence. You know, you, you, you can't talk about that kind of stuff, you know? It was a different heroes. way they were unveiled too, because they were like, I remember Bronx Zoo had an excerpt maybe in like sport magazine and it was just like a piece of it. And it was like about different Reggie Jackson's a dick. Also, it was like, Oh my God, when's this book come out? And <laughs> I think it would be really hard to build anticipation for a book like that. Like they would just release it sooner or it would just come out right away oh, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Back then it was like, what's this going to be? Is this going to be like a nuclear bomb or the Yankees going to be the same? Nobody knew it was in the book. Yeah. Now nah, it's different. Yeah, it's you know, some some it's just like life. You know, there there are great people and there are assholes. You know, it's like <laughs> same on any sport team. Yeah, you know? I'm sure movies same thing. Same thing. <laughs> so a, Did yeah. you ever think about writing a book? I uh, actually am. Uh, I've started to. I'm writing a memoir. Really? Yeah. Look yeah. at you. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I just You've been known to have some thoughts about some things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, it will all come out in the book. I've been, yeah, there's a lot of things that I, you know, still formulating how to say, but, you know, things that been brewing for years about the way I feel about certain things. Well, you, I mean, you have some unique relationships with certain experiences, right? Like you become famous overnight. Not which, really. Bull Durham, though. Yeah, but I had been going for 10 years at that time. Yeah, but that movie was like a phenomenon. Yeah, though. for sure. It was great. I mean, I'm not saying, that, but, but yeah. I don't know about overnight success. It's, I guess you were saying elsewhere when you did the arc on that. I remember that was a big deal. But yeah. I didn't know who you were. I just knew you from, what were you, like a terrorist or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was the first three uh, St. Elspers. Yeah. And I was just, the reason I got that part was because, well, it was the first audition that really clicked for me because I had such a bad attitude. And uh, I guess it kind of translated into them thinking that I'd be a good terrorist. Oh, like uh, you're too difficult or something? Just I didn't, you know, it's like, you know, young, brash, punk rocker. Yeah. Going to auditions for what, you know, Golden Girls? I'm like, no. Like, you know, <laughs> Golden Girls. <laughs> no, it's not me. Playing the grandson. Yeah. He's got an attitude. <laughs> and so it didn't work out for the first year and a half that I was going on auditions. And then something about this clicked and then i realized oh my god this is pretty good money and uh i can produce theater out of this i had a young theater company at the time called the actors gang that we had formed at ucla and uh, i had produced the first play on delivery of pizzas in beverly hills jacopo's and uh you know it's good tips but you know i realized st elsewhere was a better paycheck so right i got my act together got a better attitude started working more started producing more theater well, you talk about how some movies just don't die and just keep going and going. And then other movies are a huge success and then they don't have that same kind of, they don't keep going for 30 years. I feel like The Player was like that because mm. The Player was such a huge thing when it came out. And I felt like that was one of the defining movies of that year in a lot of different ways. And especially because Altman was a little bit older at that point. It was and his comeback. And it was like a very, very L.A. movie about people in L.A., which people out here love. But I didn't know that. I was living in Boston. Yeah. Um, but it brought me into this whole world that I just didn't know. Yeah. And it's weird that that movie hasn't, you know, it's like that movie I never see on TV. And I, I don't curious. totally understand it. Sometimes it's who owns it and how, what deals they've made and who, you know. This is a new thing that we're going to have to deal with. Like who decides what is in rotation? Yeah. And it's something I think we have to talk about, you know, like I'm frustrated that Bob Roberts isn't out there more. I think that movie is so that. relevant to, yeah. to now, uh, but you, you, you can find it, you know, you can find anything if you do a deep dive, but it's what is presented on their menus that, you know, here's what we want you to watch. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think, but I, what, when people rediscover it, the players got legs. It's, it's uh it's a really good film. It's, it's a, I would say a top 10 LA movie. 
Mm. It's definitely a top five behind the scenes Hollywood movie. And I mean, Altman. Genius. What, what, so what, what do you remember all these years later about him? Oh, I just loved him so much. Um, God, I miss him. Uh, Everybody who works with him seems like they're just like revered him. I tell you something. Uh, first time I met him, I was so nervous because, you know, I saw Nashville when I was in high school and that was the first movie I saw that made me think, oh my God, movies. I was a theater guy. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, this, there's stories to be told. And the way that he told stories uh, was so fresh and innovative. And so when I got to meet him, I was, uh, you know, I said to my agent, you know, what do we, is it an audition? What, what are the sides? What, what am I supposed to say? He said, no, no, no. He just wants to meet you. And I, so I drive to this place uh, that he was living in, in in Malibu, and it's basically his house and his and his family, and a couple of staff members. It's basically for lunch, and he just wanted to talk. And uh, one of the reasons he he wanted me to be in his film was because of the theater work I was doing. He he really appreciated the the what he read about, and um, he asked me to do this film. And I was you know at the time. Uh, I think Jacob's Ladder just come out. I was broke, had a baby, uh, and I was, you know, anxious. And I got offered this a million dollars to do this shitty comedy. And I really didn't want to do it, but I had to do it, you know? And I'm just laying in my hotel room, and uh, I I talked to my agent. I said, listen, uh, what's the chance of the player happening? I don't know. They don't have the financing for it yet. He said, really? But it would happen when? Like in a couple months. Uh, yeah, and this thing's going right now, and it would conflict, this million-dollar offer. And I just said, fuck it, I can't. I can't do it. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this shitty comedy. I'm going to wait with the faith that the player will happen, right? What I didn't know is in the course of that long wait over a couple months, Altman had was offered... Uh, the money to do it with another actor. Oh. And he stayed faithful. Really? Yeah. He said, oh, no, I'm going to do it with this kid. I talked to him, you know, and I, I told him I want him to do it. So I made, I gave him my word, and so we're going to do it with him. So he waited for me to be acceptable to them. And you turned down a million-dollar comedy uh, that probably disappeared after five, five <laughs> yeah, weeks. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. But here's here's what happened, you know, being allowed into this world. Uh, basically, Altman told me to come out to pre- for pre-production. He said, we're going to rewrite this. Uh, we're going to sit down. We're going to hash this out. So I got to sit at the feet of a master. Yeah. Uh, I, got to, I got to observe everything about directing from him. Uh, and that was really... Uh, so you're gr- like going to grad school almost. Exactly. Or- it was my film school. And it was right before I directed my first film too. I did uh, the player in the in the spring, and in the fall I was directing Bob Roberts. Right. And um, you know, one of the greatest things I learned from him was humility. Um, this was a genius. This was what you could call an auteur, uh, an artist. And I'd be in the office with him and, you know, department heads would come in, the prop guy, the costume person, they'd say, you know, Bob, I uh, got a question, this and this and this and this. If they, if they went on at all, he'd say, cut to the verb. And they'd, they'd get to what they were talk, wanted to talk about without all the niceties. And he would say, I don't know. What do you think? And what I realized is that, yeah, he did know the answer to these various questions about props and costumes. But he wanted them to be contributors and he wanted them to feel valued as contributors. And then at one point he says to me, why would I cheat myself out of them? Perhaps maybe having a better idea. Why would I cheat myself out of that? And I I came to understand that the directing is really uh, being able to, yes, be the, the, the captain, but also allow your uh, crew members to do their jobs and also to be able to live in the unknown. Yeah. That you maybe don't know everything. And that isn't it great that there's all these creative people around that can provide answers to those questions. And that's what the actors responded to. Usually that, that's why that, actors loved him so much. Usually that philosophy works for, you see, with comedies. Like Adam McKay directs that way when he does his movies. He relies a lot on the ad-libbing and letting rope. But usually you don't see that as much in dramas. Yeah. Well, PTA uh, has PTA is another one who does yeah. that, yeah. Because he came through that school as well. 
I would say Altman was probably the best possible person to spend a few weeks with. Oh my God. Because if you'd, if you'd spent like five weeks with Stanley Kubrick, I, I don't know how much that would have helped you. You'd be like, what's going on with that guy? <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's the, yeah. It was almost the opposite, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I did three movies with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wish that I could have done more. So the player comes out and you're in LA. First we're in Cannes. And it's at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. And it's a huge hit. And I'm I'm at the Cannes Kill. You won, right? I won Best Actor. Yeah. yeah. And uh, at the same time, I also am presenting uh, at the Cannes Film Festival my first film, Bob Roberts, which is getting oh, a whole wow. bunch of attention there and got a distri- distribution out of there. So, yeah, I was. this is two days after my second son was born. I got on a plane to go to Cannes. And I just said to Susan, I, you know what? If... If this baby doesn't come, I'm not going to camp. So the second I said that, the baby was born. Oh, and thank God. But uh, yeah, it was a heady time. It was, uh, you know, I remember, you know, being there with both films. And, you know, it was, I was so happy to be there with Bob because it was his return. Yeah. Uh, he had been out of, uh, you know. For a while. Yeah. They, he was kind of still doing films, you know, out of New York and doing filming plays. And, you know, he's still creating, but wasn't, you know, in favor in Hollywood. Were people in LA, LA like the, like the agent community? Hey, that wasn't about me, right? Or uh, hey, that, that. was there I a actually, lot of that? I actually uh, was in a couple of agents' offices yeah. uh, to study uh, this role. So I, oh, I sat with a couple, uh, well, actually, let me correct myself, not agents, executives studio executives i sat and listened to all their phone calls for like four hours five hours straight just uh, to get a feel just to get a feel of all the bullshit and uh i was really grateful to those executives who shall remain nameless <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but all of it was funny because in can when it was this huge success i remember him turning to me and he goes mm, uh success the success you know we, we must have fucked up because you know we, we were probably too nice to them this is an accident yeah <laughs> <laughs> we we're too nice to them i you know it was success I, mean, I don't trust it why do you think bob roberts if somebody watched it in 2019 i mean i know the answer but i want to hear from you why do you think people would be um so struck by some of the things that it right wing successful businessman running for the senate also a big fan of beauty pageants uh you know comes out of entertainment i don't know so you're saying there might be a couple parallels a couple parallels it's weird that that it's not on tv especially like during an election cycle yeah you would think that would be popping on yeah same thing for like bullworth and from your mouth to god's ears Get on at cable distributors. God being the cable distributors. <laughs> you talked about the rewatchability and how some things go and some things don't and how people, who knows who's controlling it. Shawshank's the best example of that, right? Yeah. Turner buys it from, or merges with Castle Rock or whatever happened, and they just get Shawshank forever, basically, and they're just putting it on TBS and TNT for four straight years. Yeah. I mean, I was in the group of people who remember where they saw it, what theater, yeah, um, the whole thing. I remember my, we did a rewatchables about it a few months ago and I had my dad on it because he was the one who called me and was like, go see the Shawshank movie. And I'm like, really? The one with the weird title? It's like, just go, just go to the movie. <laughs> and I went, I took my girlfriend and we were just sitting in the car after like in a coma. Oh, wow. But the rewatchability of that movie was what made it because it didn't, yeah. Did okay. You had to re-release it. The Oscars helped, but it didn't really become Shawshank for a couple of years, it feels like. It took a while until uh, yeah. people found it. And, you know, that was a great experience to go through because it taught me, you know, which I'd already been through, by the way, with Jacob's Ladder, which I knew that was a great, I knew it was a great film. That's a good movie. It didn't have the audience when it came out. It just was the wrong time for it. Yeah. Um, it taught, that taught me not to, judge a movie based on its first weekend box office. It's, it's irrelevant in the long run. Uh, it might make more money, but it doesn't mean the movie's great. So yeah, Shawshank was, is, is, is kind of the gift that keeps giving, you know, when Turner did that, it, he sold it to himself 
Yeah. Uh, for the lowest rate. Probably a little bit illegal, right? I mean, I'm it probably sh- hurt your hurt your residuals a little bit. I, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I don't I don't stress about that. You know, I've had even lawyers you know come up to me. Do you want to sue them? I'm like, no. I, Shawshank is what it is. You know. Yeah. It, it's uh, it and it has this indelible, um, lasting reputation and i i i I've, i feel that that's really the point of it I, I you know the fact that he the turner did that actually created the space for people to see the the film whereas if if he hadn't perhaps maybe we wouldn't be talking about it today so uh i'm i love the idea that it it has such a, a wide reach and across all kinds of cultural barriers, political barriers. You know, I was in China, you know, I flew two hours out of Beijing uh, into the countryside, then drove another three hours to our, where the location where we were going to film. And people there knew Shawshank. Seriously? Yeah. I, I was like, wow, this movie is really, you know. Well, it's another one that's even more timeless than Bull Durham because it's actually set in the 1950s. So it could just go on 50s and 60s. It could just go on for you know, ever, because it's trapped in this little area. I did, when we did the podcast about it, I did a lot of research about it. It's always tough to tell what's true and not true. But it did seem like it wasn't, like, the happiest filming. Which one? Just Shawshank, like, the actual, like, it was a little bit it was acrimonious. Not a, not acrimonious. It's more that it took a long time. A lot uh, of takes. A lot of takes. Uh, and there was, you know, I loved... Uh, Morgan and Clancy Brown and uh, Roger Deakins on that film. And, you know, a lot of the actors would get together. And you're all stuck on a prison. Yeah. Yeah. In in Ohio. And, uh, and yeah, no, we made it work. It's, it's, it's just, you know, I think what was, if there was any struggle on that film, it was that it was because everyone loved the script so much that Frank Darabont had written. I mean, it was a genius script. And so when you are part of something like that, you kind of want to protect that, what that feeling was that you had when you read that script. Yeah. And if it's straying from that at all, because you care so much about it, you, you want to put your foot down. And that's not very often that you do that as a, as a actor, at least for me, in my yeah. experience, because, you know, generally you either are going with the flow of it or you don't care. And that's the worst part. I, I think it has one of the great decisions to delete a scene ever. Because I remember a Showtime a couple of years later when he's chiseling through the wall, which you don't see until after he escapes. Mm-hmm. Initially, he's chiseling through the wall and the thing comes out and he kind of whatever. And that yeah. was in there in the structure of the film. So from that point on, you know, he, you know he's thinking about getting through the wall. And he takes that out, and but he makes it a flashback instead. Yeah, yeah. So when he actually escapes, I remember being in the theater thinking like he killed himself, or you know, you you don't think the escape part. You're just thinking the worst. You're thinking the way Red's thinking, right? And it's this red herring that oh no, he actually escaped. Yeah. And if that's not in there, it's a totally different movie. It's a totally different experience. Now yeah. we've seen it a million times. You know he's going to escape, but that first time I was like, oh my god, he got out. Yeah, well, that was the play. Was that we? What, he's saying goodbye to his friends. So the emotion that he has when he's saying the final things to Red are, you know, steeped in that sadness. Yeah, but it's also a sadness that we we kind of wanted the audience to maybe believe that the sadness was going to lead to a suicide. And they cut out. He cuts out some stuff with after Morgan Freeman gets out about him adjusting to the yeah. new life that actually like it just, yeah. cause at that point you just want to get to the, to the hug in Mexico. And then that was the other thing I learned that they, that and the hug wasn't initially in there and they didn't want to have that. And there was like a whole bunch of couple different endings filmed and they settled on him actually being on the beach, red Andy and red and that whole thing. But I mean, you need some luck when you make a movie, but it seems like every decision worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what happens to those guys after, in your opinion? Uh, They're on the boat. Red gets checked into Andy's hotel. What do the next 10 years look like? I, they run a business, have fun, you know, live free. 
or die. <laughs> think Red's like the manager of the hotel? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, you know, they're, they're, of course, the absurd version of that is like, you know, the, the, someone was like, what's the sequel? I'm like, uh, you know, Andy and Red, Girls Gone Wild, Ziwatane. <laughs> Wouldn't that just kill everything you hold sacred about Shawshank Redemption? I always thought, <laughs> I can't believe you guys haven't done a Super Bowl commercial where you're on well, the beach now. You wouldn't do it? I wouldn't do it. I would, I've been offered uh, stuff like that. You've never done it. To go Not off of back. Shawshank. Would never, ever do anything to denigrate or, you know, uh, exploit uh, that movie. I think it means too much to people. So then you go and do Dead Man Walking next year. Yeah. Which was a trip. Uh, Intense. Yeah. Another prison story. And, and this was a, you know, I was, while I was doing Shawshank Redemption, I was writing Cradle Will Rock. And I wanted that to be my follow-up film to Bob Roberts. And then Susan found this incredible book by Sister Helen Prejean and uh, wanted us to do that and uh i read the book and uh, i put the other one on hold and wrote the screenplay for dead man walking pretty quickly uh and you know i think i had the first draft in september and we were filming by uh january february it was very quick happened very quick what do you remember about the whole oscar stretch for shawshank and dead man walking and that whole process was that did they sit was that in motion back then where you like it is now, like now when you're trying to get a movie nominated or whatever, you got to do the podcast circuit and I think you got to do late lap, night shows. You got to do lap dances. Though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you you kind of do though. Get it out there. I'm not even sure if it works, but that seems to be I don't the think it does. And I think it's gross and I think it denigrates everything. It denigrates the creative people. It, it denigrates the business. I, 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 it's like a two month, three month lap dance really. And I um, like it because I, I get to talk to people like you on the podcast. But this is a different kind of podcast than the yeah. five minute, like five questions, and then you move on to the Well, next listen, place. I'm happy to do that. I'm always happy to talk to people because, you know, part of what we do, we want people to know about, you know, I want people to know about this movie I've, I've done called Dark Waters. I want people right. to go see it. That's all been part of the business forever. And what I'm talking about is the extracurricular kind of things. The oh, the parties, oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, people the meet and greets the you know you gotta be at this place you don't want to be and shake hands because you it, it could lead to a nomination kind of thing and that's you know i i don't i don't know i just find that i i was really blessed to not never really have to do that um for mystic river i was working on a play called embedded at the time in new york and i didn't have to go to i couldn't go to all those uh those parties and events that people throw and I won anyway. So, you know, I, I, Oh, you I, didn't, you didn't do any lobbying at all? No, no, I didn't. What made you click with Sean? What Sean made Penn. me click with Sean? Yeah. I had him on the pod, I think like maybe two months ago. I liked him. I mean, he's intense, but he's got, there's like a sense of humor underneath. I, I don't know. I like, oh, yeah. I like talking to him. Oh yeah. He's an incredibly talented actor. He's a great person. Uh, I, I, I knew him. Early on, he uh, around the time I did a, a film called Five Corners, uh, I, I talked to him for the first time. He asked me to do a movie for him. I couldn't at the time. And then when I was uh, writing Dead Man Walking, when I finished my first draft, I thought about who would be the ideal to play him, uh, this part, and I thought of, of Sean, but I had just read, he had just done an interview saying that he was quitting acting. <laughs> and, and then, One many know, times. And so I, I kind of when I read that, I my feeling wasn't that he was quitting acting. He was, I think, what I got out of it, he was quitting reading bad scripts, uh, which I can definitely understand. Right, I, you know, because that can be very frustrating. Uh, anyway, I sent him the script, went and met with him, and he agreed to do it. And uh, it, he was great. And both he and, and Susan are amazing in that film. And the chemistry between them and the uh, the depths that they, uh, of emotion that they play. And uh, I just, I feel like they, they really found the love story in that, yeah. in that movie. And uh, the unlikely path to redemption for this kind of contemptible human being. Kyle, can you imagine me directing my wife in a movie? Kyle, Kyle's a 
his her no, nephew. Definitely not. It would be tough, right? She I would get mad at mad at least five. Service or yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting wrinkle to the marriage, like directing your wife in a movie for two months. Yeah, yeah. It was it worked out pretty well though. Yeah, I would yeah, say. Yeah, she won an Oscar for it, and uh, Sean was nominated, and I was nominated for director. What do you think? Um, of all the movies you made, what's the one that you're kind of annoyed wasn't appreciated the way you thought it should have been? You know, Altman. I asked him this question. And he says, "You know, the one I love, the one I love the most is the one that people. It's like my kids. The one I love the most are the ones that aren't paid attention to." Right. And so... What uh, was his answer then? I think he loved Brewster McLeod. Really? <laughs> um, the, uh, I can't That's say hilarious. that 100% was, which was, was the answer, but because I think he had appreciation for, you know, other things that were ignored. And he went through a, a, quite a few of those. Yeah. For me, it's Cradle Will Rock, a film I made in 1999. It's an epic uh, film set in the 30s about art and the uh, what artists do to survive and uh, what it is to state an opinion in a, in a free society and what the ramifications are for that sometimes. It's a, you know, a sprawling film, a huge film. And uh, Disney dumped it when, it when it came out. They hated it. It was made... Uh, through the good graces of a guy named Joe Roth. Yeah, I remember him. Um, yeah. And, big, big studio head. Yeah, he was the head of uh, uh, Disney. He had seen Dead Man Walking. He had told me how much he loved it. He said this, uh, he had also said it's very rare for a second film to be that good. And I, I, I know you're a good filmmaker. And so I want to know what your new idea is. And I gave him the script. And it was like one of those, you know, old time <laughs> stories. You know, you walk in an office, Guy says, how much you need? And uh, yeah, all right, all right, kid, go ahead. The keys are yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go make your movie. And um, so uh, it was a, kind of miraculous that the movie got made in, in the first place. But then Joe left his job before it came out. Oh, and then the new person and, comes and so in, the new they person don't care. Came in and whatever oh, happened. Man. But I, I, you know, what happened was it had a, a contractual obligation to be, to be released in 100 theaters. So what they did was they dumped it. They put it in a hundred theaters for a day. That's all they needed to do, and didn't even invite critics. And I, you know, I did the research. I went around. No advertisements for various. Oh, that's markets. so frustrating. I never saw it. I yeah, well, came that's why went. you didn't see yeah. it. <laughs> and then I found out, you know, it wasn't it wasn't released internationally in English markets. This had a cast with you know. Uh, John Cusack, Joan Cusack, Bill Murray, Susan Sarandon. Oh my uh, God! Um, Ruben Blades, uh, Carrie Elwes, uh, Emily Watson. Um, Jesus, just a, you know, John Turturro, great cast, and wasn't released in Australia. Figure that out on DVD or video cassette. So, uh, yeah, that's the film I would really encourage people to find. And even if you have to find it illegally and down, I, I just go ahead and do it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't pay for it. Just steal it somewhere. That's crazy. Steal this movie. <laughs> you you and uh, your wife at the time, you started to take shit for being political. And now you think like 2019 seems like uh, that has certainly changed with celebrities. Has it? I think it has. I think a lot more see, people are outspoken well, she, than it was when you guys were doing it. It's easy to say something negative about what's happening right now yeah for sure uh and i'm glad people are talking about it i wish that the stakes are lower well yeah i mean listen where it matters is when people are going to start dying that's very clear in my mind when the people the powers that be are starting to cook up a war somewhere yeah. or they're intervening in other people's conflicts and trying to create a war somewhere because of our business interests, that's when it's important to have freedom of speech. That's when it, it's important to use it. And the last big time that happened in the early 2000s when we went into Iraq. You were very outspoken. I was, but you know how many people weren't. I mean, it was just basically me, Susan, Sean Penn, and Michael Moore. That was about it, you know. Not a lot of people came out. And I knew a lot of these people were against that war. 
and would come up to me privately and say, oh, thank you for speaking out against it. I'm like, why are you whispering? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a voice. You, you have a right to speak out about this stuff. The more people that speak out about it, the less chances is going to happen. Then we see in the, you know, two weeks before the actual war begins, a massive movement across the world, millions of people coming out on the streets in 500 cities protesting on the same day against a war that had not yet happened. That has never happened in human history before. And so I knew there was a huge movement. And I knew <clears throat> beyond that, I knew that we were being uh, demonized for speaking out against it. And why? Because they didn't have the truth on their side. And they had to intimidate people into silence. And they were very, very effective in doing that. Not only people like me, celebrities that have access to a microphone, but even more scarily, people in the press whose job it is to ask these questions, people yeah. in the major press, New York Times, NBC, CBS, ABC, no one standing in the way of this deception that led to this war, that led to million people dying in Iraq, a refugee crisis that we're still dealing with then, yeah. now, a destabilization in that region that we're still dealing with right now. Huge, 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 huge mistakes made, right? Guess what? Did we get any uh, you know, apologies for being right? Right. Did anyone ever apologize? Did ever, anyone ever say, you know, sorry, we called you a traitor? Uh, did I don't any, they, they were calling you a traitor? I don't remember oh, that Oh, yeah. No, and worse. This is a long time Saddam ago. Saddam supporter, terrorist supporter. Oh, my God. Because they wanted to intimidate other people into silence, and they were very effective in doing that. Yeah. People in my profession that, that I knew personally, there were progressive people that were silent out of self-interest, career survival. You shut up, you, you'll, you'll last a lot longer. Right. When it mattered most, right? Which kind of colored my, the way I look at, you know, when people say that <laughs> Hollywood's a liberal place. Well, it's not liberal when it has to be. And so a recent incident of that is yeah. you look at Chile right now. It's yeah. on fire with democracy. These people are, you know, they had 10,000 people, 20,000 people come out against a subway fare hike. The, the, the government responds with the military, kills a couple protesters. Two days, three days later, there's a million people on the streets protesting in Santiago. And we had just been down there in January and done a play down there. The Actress Gang had done our uh, play called New, New Colossus down there. Yeah. Holy cow, those people are on fire. They're just, you know, they're really incredible culture, an incredible culture. One of the things that they do are doing right now, they have these protests where they block um, streets. And they have this chant. And they're, they're playing music and they're dancing. And they're saying, the chant is, if you dance, you can pass. If you dance, you can pass. So drivers, if they come up and they need to get through, they have to get out of their car or their truck <laughs> and dance, and then the people let them through. And this is the spirit of this country. But you're not seeing anything about this in the press here. It's not being reported at all. There's revolutions happening all over South America that you're not reading about. That, that of people that are the indigenous people whose power was stolen from them, being kicked out of the legislature in Bolivia by a right-wing coup. We're not reading any of this. So for me, you know, I, when people say, you know, liberal Hollywood, I just, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I don't see it. I just, or, or maybe that is liberal Hollywood. Maybe I'm not a liberal. Maybe I'm. Do you feel like it hurt you from a that. career standpoint at all in the mid 2000s? Did you become like too hot to cast or anything? You see, I can't answer I don't, that question. I don't remember I don't remember the chronology of all of it. I can't answer that question definitively that because I wouldn't know, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are not things that people wear on their sleeve. You know, I, I proudly, you know, said that Tim Robbins couldn't be in this movie. No one's going to admit to anything like sure. that. Uh, if there is a blacklist now, it would not be in the same way it was in the past. Uh, yeah. Do I feel, do I live in that space? No, I do not. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of paranoid thinking, that kind of victimized thinking. I am so lucky to be where I am. I am so blessed to have the career that I have, the life that I have. I, I can do things creatively with my theater company. I have uh, a blessed career where uh, I, I can continue to work in this business and make money. Yeah. Uh, so there's no complaints here. And, but the thing is, I get asked that question a lot. 
Do you really? Yeah. No, but th- has your uh, involvement with various causes affected your career? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I will tell you, I have not worked, I have not starred in a studio movie since I won the Oscar. No. Yeah. Since 03. Since 03. So like they're making. I've, I've done independent movies. I've done, I've had starring roles in independent movies. But, but they're making in, like Marvel movie where they need a president. They're not looking for Tim Robbins. Well, yeah. Or maybe I'm not looking to be the president in a Marvel movie too. I mean, that's part of the equation here too. Although you got to be president in Austin Powers movie. Well, I'd definitely do that again. <laughs> Austin Powers One million dollars. Sure. <laughs> uh, how long did you, how long did you have to, Work on the Boston accent before you felt good about breaking it out. Mystic River. So I grew up in New York City, so I already have part of that. You know, obviously they're not the same. You have that. It's the attitude part that matters. Yes, I, That's I the part up, everybody misses with the Boston accent. It's yeah. got to come from attitude. It's, got, it's, it's from the streets. Yeah. It's from the streets. And so I grew up with that street culture in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s. So all my friends were like, you know, this, you know, so yeah. that voice in my head, you know, I can talk like this anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I grew up with it. And so Boston is just an adjustment you got to make, you know, which I, uh, and then I did a main accent for this, uh, dark, uh, this, uh, thing called Castle Rock that I'm in right now. That, oh, the TV show. Yeah. Yeah. That's a main. People main like accent. Castle Rock. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's a good one. Scary Wait, what's a spot. main accent? It's kind of a. I'm from Massachusetts. I don't. I didn't. It's know a there little was any bit difference. longer of an A sound. It's uh, slower. A little bit more drawly. Oh. But you got to be careful not to go into southern. But it's got a lot. It's a little longer. Longer. Oh, interesting. Boston. Boston. Because Rhode Island was the one. Rhode Island's like the Boston accent on steroids. <laughs> And PDs. Yeah. <laughs> it takes it to 19 other levels. And, but, you know, there's different variations of South Shore, North Shore. Like, I can usually tell for the most part, Rhode Island stands out. Maine, I, Maine I don't have a lot of familiarity with. Yeah. Well, it's Pepper Tom remembers. That, <laughs> that's, the, that's the main thing. Tell me about the new movie. Uh, Dark Waters. So, um, Todd Haynes, great filmmaker. Yeah. Um, you know, he's made some amazing films. Uh, I get this script. Uh, Mark Ruffalo's the star. Uh, read it. Um, I'm totally in. It's a story about this lawyer named Rob Bellot, who uh, was a lawyer, a partner in a very conservative Cincinnati law firm uh, that represented chemical companies. And Don't, you can't spoil the movie, though. I'm not going to spoil. I have the a movie. no spoil the movie rule on my podcast. I will not spoil the movie. You can set up the movie. I will set up the movie. <laughs> I have been programmed. I will not. I, I will just not saw a movie stray. called Waves that was great, and I knew nothing, and it was so refreshing to just experience a movie and not know anything. But this is good. Okay, so he goes to his law. His he's approached by a, a family friend, yeah, a farmer. Who's, this is all happening in the first 15 minutes. Great. So, you know, you know, I'm not ruining anything. No. But his farmer has realized that his land has been uh, polluted. And uh, he wants to know why his cows are dying. And he's got videotape to prove it. And, you know, all these weird sh- things that are happening to the, his cows. And so he goes to this lawyer who works for a law firm that represents chemical companies and asks him to sue a chemical company, DuPont. And uh, I play uh, Mark uh, Ruffalo's boss, and uh, I see the evidence, and I say, yeah, go ahead and sue them, even though it goes completely against the culture of this law firm. And what happens is you you learn in the course of the movie the extent uh, uh, to which uh, DuPont knew mm. how toxic this chemical was. And uh, didn't matter to them. It was too profitable. And you it's seem the, really it's, proud of this one. It's it, yeah, I am. It, it is the chemical that is in Teflon. And uh, if you, I remember, you know, when this happened, I got rid of all my Teflon. I had young kids at the time, and uh, holy shit, we were, you know, we're, yeah, this is poisoning them. Yeah. And you know that what happens is in, over the course of the years, you have you know Rob Bellot, this lawyer. It took him twenty years, still still working on this. Uh, but he got he had one the most extensive uh, blood sampling done in this local community in West Virginia, uh, 
60,000 subjects in this test and definitively proved the link between PFOA, this chemical in, in Teflon, and eight separate illnesses, uh, including cancers. Jesus. And definitive medical evidence. And still, Teflon is, uh, DuPont reneges on the original deal they made and is making him sue individually in order to get settlements. And then eventually, after he did this five times, this is now 15 years in, they eventually made a, a mass settlement. But still, this, this, this test, this blood testing they did that proved this connection would be effective for the lives of the subjects, right? So if they get sick later, they're still, DuPont is still liable. Well, guess what happened two weeks ago? The EPA secretly trying this little this the New York Times discovers this memo the EPA is trying to throw out that medical study there and not only that medical study but other medical studies that have been done in the past 30 40 years that show a link between pollutants and cancer so essentially what the EPA is now saying the environmental protection agency is now saying is that you have to go you have to show me every subject that was in that medical test and I have to be able to check to see whether that is uh, if that evidence is 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 solid. Now, most of these people in this blood test that Rob Balot did did it under condition of anonymity, yeah, because they were residents of a town that was basically run by Dupont, and they didn't want Dupont to know that they were participating in the study because they would lose their jobs at Dupont. So. Anything that's anonymous in the past, now EPA is saying you can throw it out. This is what's happened to our regulation agencies. This, this is the agency that's supposed to protect our air, our water, and it's actually doing the opposite. It's incredible what's happening right now. Anyway, this movie is a great thriller. It's like, you know, in the tradition of those 70s uh, whistleblower uh, movies. Uh, those All are the my President's favorite movies. Men, I love those movies. You. Yeah. 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 You'll love this. Three Days of the Condor? You'll love it. It's really thrilling. Really thrilling. Right. Three Days of the Condor, great movie. So we're coming to the tail end. So what's we got to talk about the 86 World Series. <laughs> I'm a Boston fan. Oh, sorry. In fact, I'm I got sorry. to ESPN in 2001. I was writing columns and I was comparing being a Red Sox fan to Shawshank and holding on to hope, even though there's no reason you should have hope and all that stuff and the whole thing. But 86, it damn near ruined me. You're, you're a huge Mets fan, huge Rangers fan. Yeah. Are you a Knicks fan or do you, you divorce the Knicks? Uh, they're really hard to fault. They're really, really hard. Tough one. So you stayed with the Mets and Rangers? Yeah. 86 World Series, were you there? I was there. You were there? Yeah. I figured you were there. I game don't know six, why. I was at a wedding in Los Angeles listening to it on a radio train. Wow. <laughs> game seven, I flew back for you. And there's a rain delay. So and I was, by the way, I was at the 1969, October 16th uh, game where the Mets won the World Series. Really? On my birthday. 11th birthday. Holy my shit. My mom had traveled out in, on the subway, the seven train, uh, like four o'clock in the morning to get World Series tickets for my birthday, October 16th. Just so happened that was game five. Just so happened out of, you know, impossible Kind yeah, of and they take how, care of business in yeah, game five. Five games against yeah. the Baltimore Orioles, you know, with Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson. Great, Unbelievable. Incredible team. And somehow we won it. And I saw it. And I, I was there when they were tearing up the field and, you know, got some grass and part of the outfield wall on my way home in the subway for someone. <laughs> Those are the days when you could win the title and the fans and, could just go on the field and take stuff. <laughs> tear it up. It was complete <laughs> It ended in the late 70s. And I was 11 point. years old and I got to the edge of the field and I look back and my grandmother's like looking at me like, please don't go. I'll never <laughs> see you again. <laughs> so, you know, it was a kind man on the way home on the subway gave me uh, part of his. So uh, is Pete Alonzo one of the five most important people in your life? Pete Alonzo? No. The Mets? No. No? Right now? 54 homers? Well, yeah, but it's not, I, I, okay. I've gotten to a place where I can't allow my emotional health be determined by the sports team I'm following. Well, that's that's probably <laughs> smart. I've been through too many New York Mets seasons to, to, um, to get too connected to it. It's really, it's been really interesting for me because I have a lot of Mets fans in my life. And when I was in high school, the Mets beat the Red Sox and I was going to school in Connecticut. So I was surrounded mm. by New York fans. Yeah. 
and I felt like they had one over me for the next however many years of my life. And now it's flipped and it's been interesting to watch the hope getting beaten out of the Mets fans really over the last 15 years, I would say, <laughs> where now it's flipped where they're kind of where I was in 1986, where it's yeah. never going to happen. Uh, Cause it's been 33 years. I know. And you guys, it's like run- two generations. Yeah. It's we have somebody, long. one of the people too that long. runs a ringer with me is a, is a diehard Mets Jets fan. Who's in his? That's, he's probably like 36, 37. That's a special. So he has no positive memory. Special form of masochism. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, crazy. He, he remembers nothing good. I know for right? decades. I got to see Joe Namath play. Right. I saw the 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 playoff game that led to the Super Bowl in Shea Stadium, freezing cold December. I think it was against the Chiefs. Uh, I mean, that's the crazy thing. We have fifty years ago the Mets and Jets. Incredible, and now you right? Think, like, if you told a Mets Jets fan now, like, man, you should have seen when we won titles in the same year. They're like, what? Yeah. And well, I just did this Castle Rock, and I stayed in Boston and got to go to Fenway a few times. Yeah. Oh my God. It still, it still has it's magic. Shrine. It's a church. It's, great. it's a that beautiful, beautiful still... place. Beautiful place. I was so sorry they tore down Shea and Yankee Stadium, for that matter. There's something about those old ballparks that is so special. And Boston is such a great city, you know. It's and I was really happy when the Red Sox won. Thank you. For me, it was, uh, you know, I, I love it anytime a curse has ended. I loved yeah. when the Cubs uh, won. Uh, who's next? Uh, uh, Pretty much all the curses are getting crossed off in baseball. Yeah. We have a couple like the. Now we're talking like the Mariners and teams like that, but like the Astros won, the White Sox won, the Cubs won, the Giants won. Like the we're. In- if the Indians won? Indians have not won. Yeah, that, But I mean... They, they got to change the logo first. And the then, Cleveland then fans win. were so excited that any team won that I think they're riding <laughs> the Cavs thing for all four, all three teams. But yeah, yeah, the Indians are left. There's there's some good ones, but all the OGs have kind yeah. of taken care of business. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, and I I got to go to a couple games uh, this summer uh, in, in Fenway and I, I really enjoy that team, and then they just kind of they couldn't rise up when they needed to. But no, yeah, it's got it's got it's got a lot of potential. That you team. know, it's funny the Dodgers are starting the Dodgers and the Mets. Where now you're talking about two generations of fans basically that don't remember anything good, or maybe even three. <laughs> but the Dodgers, the '88 Kirk Gibson, but they've probably had the roughest decade of any baseball team by far because they get so close. Yeah. And they can Seven straight years. Yeah, it yeah. just, Oh, yeah. this is the year. And then they get kicked in the nuts, which yeah. is the whole Red Sox thing. Yeah. That was, that's sad. Yeah. The Red Sox, it was like every year. I shouldn't talk myself into this. Ah, I'm kind of talking myself into it. And then we just get kicked in the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind Dodgers of feel that way that. about the Rangers. I, you know, they're, they're getting close and it's just not happening. And, you know, I was glad though, that the, uh, the blues won. They, that year. was a monkey off the back. That title. was a monkey yeah. off the back. Yeah, and I I I know J- John Davison a little bit, and because uh, the work that he had done at that franchise, and the uh, and then later at the Columbus Blue Jackets, you know, so I think he's working with the Rangers now, and so I hope hope that'll have uh, we'll start to see the effects. Feels of that. like the fumes of the '94 Cup can go for another five six years. Nope. No, I need it now. You need it now. I need it now. You know, I I drank from the cup that night. Seriously? Yeah, I seriously did. And they I had you in the locker room? Well, no, no. I did not have an in. Uh, the reason I got tickets for that game was I had flown out to Vancouver for game six. Yeah. Because uh, I was obsessed and I've been a Ranger fan all my life. And on the plane uh, was Gary Bettman and Brian Burke, who were like, yeah. you know, the head of NHL. And so they got me tickets for game seven. So I went with my college roommate who, uh, you know, and... Um, we, at the end of the game, we heard this rumor that the cup was going to be down in Tribeca. So when we go down to Tribeca, we figure it's got to be at one of the popular bars down there. Nothing happening. You know, have a drink. Get in a cab say, take us to the cup. Cab takes us to Upper West Side, thinks he knows where it is, drives around. It's like 45 minutes later. He doesn't know where it is. We say, let us out. Get out of the cab. Another, hail down one more cab. Next cab. Take us to the cup. Oh, yeah, I know where it is. Takes us right over, and it's the east, east side, right? We've been looking on the wrong side of town. Finds the police stanchions, everything. We got our ranger gear on, you know, go up to the stanchion, wanted to be recognized for the first time in my life by the cops. You know, I just like, you know, hey, you know, can I get past? The guy recognized me, says, go ahead. I get to the door of the club. 
It's the bouncers that dress really well. They say, well, you can't come in here with that jersey on. This is a fancy party. And then the other bouncer goes, wait a second. That dude was wearing the Ranger Blue in Vancouver. I saw him on the television. You know, <laughs> we, we wore it. We had worn yeah. our, our jerseys in Vancouver and gotten pelted with stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Vancouver, yeah. vicious fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was my way in. And so I got into this party with my friend, my college roommate. And an hour later, uh, Messier walks in with the cup. And, and 20 minutes after that, I'm drinking from it. And 5.30 in the morning, I remember vague memories of the New York City Police Department bagpipe band playing <laughs> playing in the morning uh, as the sun rose <laughs> over Manhattan. <laughs> It's quite God. a surreal, So you filmed night. Shawshank the same year you drank from the Rangers Stanley Cup? That's right. That's, That's right. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. Dream come true. That's a good Dream way to end true. the podcast. Yeah. This was fun. Tim Robbins, good luck with the movie. I'm glad we finally did this. Yeah. yeah. 